the Gospel of John, John 18. We're going to look at verse 36. Let's go ahead and read that, and we'll start. John 18, 36. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Let's pray. Our Father in God, we know that right now our nation has decided to do its own thing and that by and large the church has erroneously followed suit. We really do believe that if we can rid ourselves of you that, and your authority that we'll be all right. So we confess that this is nonsense and that we must turn to you for forgiveness. So help us, Father, by your Spirit, for the sake of your Son. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So one of the things that I've tried to do in this series is, is give something that is obviously familiar to you uh, and, and really try to get you to rethink it. I chose the Bible verses um, that I did because of the plethora of misunderstandings associated with each of them. There are many of verses in the Bible that fit that category, way too many to probably count. So I tried to choose the most well-known verses, and thus they are the ones that tend to be the most misunderstood. And so we'll have, a, um, I think, like four more weeks or so of the series, and then we'll go on to other things. So um, probably I'm excited about this one <laughs> the most out of all of them. Because I think, in a way, this verse serves as a central, a central verse for our fellowship. It has a purpose and a meaning that we take very seriously here. And so, in a way, it also sort of recaps um, everything that we've talked about up until this point. And so, let's go ahead and get right to work. Now, if you think about it, all of us, all of us in here, our kids included are sometimes guilty of shooting ourselves in the foot. Now, obviously that's a metaphor, but now I'm gonna mix the metaphor a little bit. Um, there is a way in which you can live your life hacking and sawing away at a branch, working very, very hard, you know, with sweat beating down your face, and then only later you realize that the branch that you were sawing was the branch that you were sitting on. So it takes the grace of God and a good friend to warn you and tell you that you're doing it wrong. But alas, I think it's true. All of us have been guilty of this to some degree in our lives. Um, I'm pretty sure of it. We've all been, essentially it's, what I mean is this, we've all been guilty of giving our energies to something that may prove unfruitful because we didn't think it through all the way. We didn't actually count the cost. We didn't assess the situation like Jesus says we should. We've sort of just, you know, girded up our loins and went to work, not really thinking that perhaps we're sawing off the branch we're sitting on. Now, the Christian life, by and large, the Christian life, I think, is done in this manner. Sometimes, 
Sometimes our zeal gets revved up to 8,000 RPMs, right? But we look and realize that we didn't even put the car in drive. Uh, or for some of you who know how to drive a, cl- a stick shift, right? A lot of times, in a way, we are doing Christianity with the clutch in. We're just revving the engine, making noise. We're not actually going anywhere. So you can be truly zealous about the things of God in your head. You can be truly zealous for the things of God in your head, but not actually do a single thing about it. There we go. Said another way, it is possible for you to affirm something in your mind and not do anything about it with your hands. Now, Christians are notoriously guilty of this, partly because, you know, in a sense, yeah, we've been illuminated by the Holy Spirit. We've been given, given His law written in our hearts. Um, but a lot of times it, it takes, that's what progressive sanctification is, right? It takes a while for us to get it. Sometimes we just don't get it and we have to try to keep getting it. Um, now that, I believe, my friends, is a problem that does, in fact, confront all of us. So James says we're supposed to be doers of the word, not mere, merely hearers only. Now, one of the ways that this stuff that I just mentioned works itself out is how we view the kingdom of God. Now, believe it or not, the, the verse that we are going to look at today is a verse that is um, constantly and persistently ripped out of context and purported to mean something that it simply does not mean. Now, because of all the ways it's been misused, that's why I chose the branch and saw metaphor. If we don't have our theology right on this, we will, we will saw ourselves to the ground, right? And it'll be such a bad thing that we'll break every bone in our body and we'll look around wondering what just happened. And, and ultimately, that simply means we'll make ourselves irrelevant to culture and history. I would argue that most evangelicals are sawing off the branch they're sitting on because they don't believe what this verse teaches, and thus they are actually making themselves irrelevant. Most evangelical churches are irrelevant. They think, they, and I've seen this before, uh, at a church carnival, uh, the back of the shirt says, you know, the church has left the building. Well, you got to the parking lot. Congratulations. You, you didn't do anything else. Not against a carnival. We enjoy a good carnival. But you're sort of missing the boat. You're making yourselves irrelevant. So it does no good to be zealous about the wrong thing. It does no good for, for us to be doing our zealousness in the wrong way either. So our verse, John eighteen thirty six. Let's read it again. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Now, before we analyze the verse, I want to make sure we have context. Keep in mind the book of John. At the start, all the way back at the beginning of chapter 18, we learn in verse 1 that Jesus told his disciples that they were going to be going to the garden, the garden we call Gethsemane and the Mount of Olives. Um, It was there that Judas had procured a band of soldiers to go and arrest Jesus. That's in verse 3 of chapter 18. So they are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, and Jesus says in verse 5 of of chapter 18, we're just walking through that, he says, I am he, I am he. Peter, who likes to basically shoot first and ask questions later, he pulls out the sword and he cuts off Malchus's ear, if you remember, that's in verse 10. 
So Jesus heals the ear, um, but not without chiding Peter for his uh, erratic behavior. Verse 11. Jesus is then dragged off. He's dragged off to see the high priest. But sadly, in between those interactions, we find Peter denying any association with this Jesus person, this Jesus the rebel rouser. In verse 19, the high priest questions Jesus. He wants to know what he's teaching. He wants to know what this little discipleship movement is all about. What are, you, what, are you, what are you teaching people? And Jesus answers in verse 20. He says, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together, and I spoke nothing in secret. Jesus says, look, everything I've done, to you, everything I've taught, everything I've said, all the miracles, all of this stuff, I didn't do it out in, in, a, in a shack on the other side of Galilee. I have done all these things in public that nothing has been hidden. That's actually also, um, I believe it's Paul, in, in somewhere toward the end of, end of Acts, he basically says the same thing. None of this was done in secret. None of it, Jesus says, if you want access to what I've taught, you can find it. It's out there. You can find the website and the podcast. You can listen later. The Sermon on the Mount's there. He continues on in verse 21. He says, why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. In other words, here we have a trial. Jesus is being put on trial at nighttime, which was illegal according to Jewish law. And this was done. Why were they supposed to be done at daylight? Well, because there was to be a public awareness about the proceedings. The public had every right um, to, to witness this trial. Um, so they did, they did it at night, right? They wanted to keep the public out of it. They wanted to keep, you know, they didn't want the newspapers showing up. They didn't want TMZ showing up. They wanted everything to be kept at a minimum. A true kangaroo court, the religious leaders needed to get Jesus out of the way, and they needed to get him out of there yesterday. One of the officers, if you recall, during this exchange... I wonder what his name was. This officer struck Jesus with his hand. Now that's a guy. He's, that's a no-no. <laughs> that's in verse 22. Now Jesus, who does believe and teach in due process, he wants the witnesses to come forward. Where is the testimony? Where are the witnesses? What, what is the testimony of my wrongdoing? But, of course, they have no witnesses. They have no testimony. They have to cook something up to make it work and make it stick. They have to build the case some more. So what do they do next? Well, they drag Jesus to Pilate. They try to escalate things. Now, Pilate, who is and was very much familiar with the ins and outs of Jewish law, he knows that in order to keep the peace, that was his job, in order to keep the peace, he needs to make sure that all the local customs are followed so that no you know, violent revolutions spring up. Now, Pilate wishes to know what the charges are against Jesus. Verse 29, he, he wants to know, what are the charges against this Messiah figure? The religious leaders are then put on a spot, and now they have another issue. <laughs> what are the charges anyway? We maybe didn't think this through. What are the charges? So instead of listing the charges, they say in verse 30, if this man... We're not an evildoer. We would not have delivered him to you. In other words, charges. Pilate, we, we wouldn't have woken you up from sleep if, if we knew that he was innocent. We know he's guilty. Trust us. 
sneaky little statists, aren't they? They probably, these crooks probably also believe that taxation is good because we need roads. That's the category they're in. <laughs> Later in the next chapter, they accused Jesus of blasphemy, but it wasn't against um, Roman law. It's not, a, it's not a Roman offense. It was a Jewish offense. After that, the official charges were as follows. This is where they finally landed. Number one, why was Jesus put on trial? Well, seditious agitation was one of them. Clearly, he was stirring up controversy. Flipping tables over twice in the temple tends to do that. Um, Second, the charges were forbidding people to pay taxes to Caesar. If you remember that exchange, they didn't like that. And three, the charges were assuming the title King of the Jews. So this kangaroo court finally came up with something. At any rate, Pilate wasn't going to hear the trial if it was blasphemy because he doesn't care. He does not care about the God of, of the Jews. He has no, it does not matter to him. It's no, no, uh, no skin off his nose. He, he, he doesn't care. And so he tells them, take Jesus away, judge him by their own laws. Verse 31. Now this is problematic because they said, well, w- Pilate, we are not permitted to put anyone to death. Right? Now suddenly they have scruples. They, they couldn't do it because Rome, at this time, Rome was the only one that could put someone to death. And so they needed, basically, they needed Pilate, sort of a subcontractor work. They needed Pilate to handle their dirty work to get this job done. So in order to get, in order to get rid of Jesus, God's son, they had to outsource it because they couldn't do it. Only Pilate could. Now at this point, in the story here, in the interaction, Pilate, he entered into the judgment hall with Jesus and he privately questions him. Uh, He brings him into the judge's chambers, if you will. And he asks him in verse 33, he says, are you king of the Jews? That's what I'm gathering. Are you king of the Jews? Pilate needs this shored up if he's going to stand, if it's going to stand in Roman court. By By getting Jesus to admit this, he was also getting to Jesus to admit that he's the Messiah. And therefore, he's a political revolutionary, a danger. We need to get rid of him. Now, here's the difference. As R.J. Rushduni has pointed out, let me quote him. He says, In this Jewish court, such a charge depended on the religious nature of the evidence. In a Roman court, the charge was political because it controverted Caesar's claims to sovereignty. So you see the debacle. Rome did not care about the religious thing. They had, they had a religion for everything. It didn't matter. The Jews claimed the one true God while rejecting the one true God. And so they had a religious thing. Rome only cared about a political thing, so they had to marry the two ideas. Jesus replies in verse 34. He says, Are you saying this on your own initiative, or did others tell you about me? Pilate probably already had spies keeping a pulse on the nation, people who reported back to him. He would have sent them out all over to keep, keep a pulse, see what's going on. Pilate had no doubt had already at this point heard rumors, at least, about Jesus, rumors that he was a Messiah, rumors that he had some sort of political agenda that would have led him to this conclusion. So Pilate deflects Jesus then in verse 35. He says, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you to me. What have you done? Ah, yes, the politics of corruption on full display. Rome does not care about truth. That's one thing 
where you can find, especially even in our nation, is an issue of truth. Justice is just sort of rammed through. Truth is really the last thing we really care about. Rome doesn't care about truth. They care about power. They care about numbers and all the corruption that sprung up from all of those two things. So Pilate basically says this to Jesus. Look, all these people turned you over to me. Clearly, you've upset them. That's why you're here. Now, just admit to me what it is that you've done. Let's get this out in the open, and we'll go from there. Right. Because that's how justice is done. Trying to get a false confession. Jesus would have none of it. But Jesus is also very smart. He's very wise in how he responds. So look at our verse. So that's the context of the conversation. Let's look at the verse again, because this is where it comes in. Jesus answered to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Now notice what Jesus says, and notice that he says it in the negative sense. He, he doesn't need the unnecessary quarrels with Pilate. So in a, in a, at least subtly, he kind of removes the offense by saying that his kingdom, which implies that he's a king, Right, He just says, my kingdom. He's throwing it out there. I am a king, yes. My kingdom is not of this world. Are you king of the Jews, is the question. Well, <laughs> that depends on how you define kingdom. Now, all the major translations, whether it's King James Version, NASB, ESV, they all pick up, the, and it says right here at the very beginning, my kingdom is not of this world. Now, that's fine, and it's a good translation, but we have to keep the context in mind, but we also need to know how Jesus intended, what did, he mean, what did he mean by that? When most people quote this verse, they believe that Jesus is saying that Christ's kingdom has nothing to do with this world. That's typically, you've probably heard that from people. I've heard that from, from people, especially futurists who would call themselves dispensational premillennialists, they, they love this verse. It's sort of the aha card, right? Ah, gotcha. You, all you people in God's law and post-mill and all this stuff, Jesus said, my kingdom's not of this world. And what they mean by that is, Jesus' kingdom has nothing to do with this world, which is, by the way, totally hypocritical, because if you are pre-mill, Jesus imposes his top-down kingdom in a very forceful fashion in the future thousand years. So now what? Is his kingdom of this world? That's a different issue. <laughs> so that's what most people say. They think that it's sort of this, that God's kingdom is this otherworldly, spiritual-only type of kingdom. It doesn't have anything to do with the present order of things here on earth. You've heard it. I've heard this verse ripped out of context, especially by people who I would call dualists who refuse to get their hands dirty in the world because, uh, well, Jesus said his kingdom is not of this world. It's nonsense. Why would, why would Jesus instruct his disciples to pray for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven if God's kingdom isn't have anything to do with this world? Why would he say that? Was he just wishful thinking? Pray like this. I don't, you know, it's not going to happen, but pray like this. Is that what he's thinking? More on this later. The point of what Jesus is getting at is that Jesus' kingship 
and his kingdom doesn't come from the world. It does not come from the world. That's the better translation. The, the Greek word is ek. It means out of or from. Um, like, ek, you think of exit. It's out. You're leaving. E-K in Greek would be the transliteration. But it just simply means from or out of something. It's from something. Jesus says, he basically says the same thing at the end of this verse. Um, and when he says that his kingdom isn't of this realm, or better yet, from here, that is from this world. His kingdom is not from this planet. So what is he getting at? What's, the, what's he really saying? What's his point? Our Lord isn't talking about the destination of his kingdom. For the destination of his kingdom work is here on earth. Let's get that clear. It's not from this world, meaning that his authority is somehow given from here, right? Jesus does not get authorization from the kings of the earth. Jesus does not need authorization from Pilate. He doesn't need any earthly king to give him permission to be Lord. So his kingdom does not originate. It is not from any sort of United Nations Council that gets together and says, ah, well, okay, Jesus is Lord because we said so. No, Jesus is Lord. You must bow to him. So his kingdom, it does not operate like the kingdoms of the world. No, its, its origin isn't earthly. It's heavenly. And though his kingdom isn't from the earth, that's not the same thing as saying that it's not for the earth. Jesus helps us by saying, if my kingdom were from this world, my servants would have been fighting, right? If my kingdom were situated in such a way and, and orchestrated the way you, Pilate, and Caesar, and the way your kingdoms function, well, it would look different. My servants would be here. I wouldn't have scolded Peter about the sword thing and would have said, go home and get your bigger sword. That's what he would have said. In other words, Jesus' kingdom is from another place. It's, it's a different order altogether. It isn't established on earth by normal means, that being this humanist political struggle. Now, he isn't denying that his kingdom is over the world, only that its origin and that its authority are from this world. That's what he's denying. The true authority comes from God, as God is establishing his king on Zion. Listen, no man grants God authority. I don't care how much of an egotistic, pompous pastor or elder he is. No man grants God authority. No one. Jesus is in effect saying, Pilate, you work for Rome. You know how this goes. You know how everything is a top-down, lorded over like the Gentiles, Jesus says elsewhere. You know, it's this power struggle. It's a constant power struggle of factions. You know, Pilate, you know how the Caesars are assassinated and others take power, and thus Rome is in perpetual war, civil war. You know, Jesus is saying, you know, Pilate, you know the things that you have done to get you to where you are now. The people you have betrayed, the people you have slandered, the people that you have stepped on to get into this position. Jesus says, my kingdom does not work like that. It does not work like that. Otherwise, I wouldn't be standing here before you. The same 
The same Jesus who said here that his kingdom doesn't come from the world also says later after his death and resurrection, you know the passage, Matthew 28, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Rome did not give him that power and authority over earth and over heaven. The Jewish leaders did not give him that authority. God gave him that authority. And no human kingdom can rival him or conquer him. This is off the beaten path. I don't want to go far with it. But when we talk about authority, whether it's church authority, you know, ecclesiastic, or, or even authority, the civil magistrate, any authority that man handles is delegated authority from God. Because we, we believe in the priesthood of all believers. Everyone in this room has delegated authority from God. We have spheres, we have jurisdictions, we have things in place, but no mere mortal grants you authority. All the other would-be messiahs, especially during this time, and even um, others who came, I think of Bar Kokhba, who came years and years later after Jesus, they gained a following from people, they gained some fancy weaponry, and they basically tried to lead a religious revolt, a physical revolt. They declared war, um, just like Judas Maccabeus had done a couple hundred years before Christ was born. But not Jesus. Jesus gets divine authority. How? He lays down his life, not by taking up arms and provoking war. Jesus lays down his life. He serves. He doesn't uh, he doesn't get his authority because he was first. He became last. The kings of the earth, they love violence. And they love to try and take kingdoms by force. But Jesus says, my kingdom is not like that. Here's where the branch analogy comes in. So many Christians love to use this verse, and others like it, to justify their inaction in the world. So many use it to justify their inactivity in the world. So many believe, like even Dr. John MacArthur erroneously believes, he said as much, this world is a sinking ship and we ought not to bother with it. After all, why would you polish brass on a sinking ship, on the sinking Titanic? It's going down. This verse is one of the main reasons why the branch that we are sitting on is being sawed off. We are literally cutting at our own foundations. Listen, you cannot affirm God's kingdom in theory and live your life like it has nothing to do with it. You cannot live your life like it has nothing to do with God's kingdom. You can't say, oh yeah, well, Jesus is Lord. Yeah, Jesus is king. We believe that. How, how, to bring up MacArthur's statement, he even said that Jesus is right now in voluntary exile in heaven. I imagine that perhaps he's handcuffed in a room. He's in exile. Is that what he's doing right now? You cannot say that you believe in the kingdom of God in the here and now and simultaneously believe that this kingdom has nothing to do with the here and now. You can't do it. You cannot say that you believe in Jesus Christ being king, you believe in his kingdom, right, in the here and now, and simultaneously believe that this kingdom has absolutely nothing to do with politics, with 
taxation, with education, with all these things. This is the error of the premillennialist. So many Christians, so many Christians come up with the excuse of why, for example, why they're not evangelizing, why they're not building a business, why they're not, you know, involved in politics locally, or why they're why they, you know, they're not involved at the at the abortion ministry with preaching or trying to rescue babies or even, you know, doing doing anything for the kingdom, right? They, why? Why, they, why do you not live differently than, than the world? They, they come up with excuses to, to try and justify it, and they use this verse. And I've heard it a bajillion times. Jesus said his kingdom was not of this world, so let's just gather up around good old John Hagee's false prophecies about the blood moons, right? And let's cultivate our fantasies of the end of the world, and we'll watch the whole thing burn. That's American Christianity. Now, yes, some do want to watch the world burn, and there are also those who are really giddy about lighting the match because the worse it gets, the better we are, right? And if that's you, you are a pyro who needs to chill because you're going to hurt somebody. (laughs) So you cannot affirm the kingdom of God in Christ's lordship, which is applied to all areas of life, all the while acting with your hands like a functional pagan, right? You don't get to pretend that you agree with all the kingdom principles and then you fail to put in kingdom practices in your own life, in your own family, in your own church. So that's not how this works. You, you cannot saw the branch off that you are sitting on, right, and expect results. It does not matter how much sweat you're producing. You can't expect God's saving of the world to happen all the while refusing to refusing to believe that Christ's kingdom has anything to do with the present order of things. That's the schizophrenia we have going on. Christians who think that the world can be changed by, what did you do to change the world? You know what? I smiled at somebody at the grocery store. I smiled big. They'll probably, get, they'll probably go to heaven someday because <laughs> you smiled at them. <laughs> A person who thinks that is the person who sawed off the branch that they're sitting on. You don't get to have a godly revolution if you don't have a message that has serious implications for the here and now. That's why no one's changing the world by simply waving and being nice. Last year it was 2017. 2017 marked the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. But that event, the Protestant Reformation, marked by Luther's nailing of the 95 Thesis, right, to the Wittenberg door, October 31st, 1517, when he did that, that sparked a chain of events. But that event, that time frame, the the Reformation, it, it wasn't merely a discovery of justification by faith alone. It wasn't as though the only thing that happened is, ah, we finally got the gospel right. It was also a societal reformation, too. We don't just believe the right things and we pat ourselves on the back, right? We have to do the right things as well. We have to lobby hard for the right things. And we have to practice our Christianity in such a way that it actually does something with the world. Now, here's the model that I believe, and I'm going to rewrite, I know this may be blasphemy to some, I'm going to rewrite the Westminster Shorter Catechism first question. 
you know, what, what's the chief end of man to glorify God and enjoy him forever? Here's my version. The chief end of man is to glorify God and make everybody else upset about it. That's what I think. That, that's what it should be. Not, not to be jerks, but to be serious about the kingdom in such a way that it actually does something in the world. Now, the current state of affairs in our nation means that the church is going to do one of two things. The church is going to do one of two things. One, we're going to capitulate to the lies, to the lies of compromise, believing that Jesus really isn't Lord over that. He's not Lord over D.C. He's not Lord over Planned Parenthood. He's not Lord over these things. That's one option that we can do. Or two, we can go to our graves clinging to the truth. So we, we can go about this one of two ways. We can, we can hide in the corner. We can be fine with compromise. What, how, many, how many Christians are giving their kids to Caesar September through June? And they're fine with it. It's fine. The world's on fire. It's fine. <laughs> we hide in the corner, compromise ourselves, Christian, you know, our kids, they don't need a Christian education. They'll figure it out eventually, right? So we can do that. There's that option. Or we can take seriously what Jesus Christ says here, and we can go to our graves as dying men and women preaching to dying men and women, clinging to the truth that even Caesar, yes, Caesar must obey Christ. So we either wave the white flag and we surrender this planet right? This planet that Jesus says belong to us, belongs to us because Jesus bought it. Or we get serious about gospel work and we start to become godly troublemakers. Here's the part, here's part of the problem that we're running into. Our culture right now, they want, our culture wants you to fit your religious convictions into the places that they give you permission. It's one of the strategies of, of secular humanism, right? Yes, you can have your beliefs. You can do those things, but you can't talk about them here. You can't do anything over here. You shouldn't do anything over here. And that's the terms and conditions. So whether it's, whether it's marriage in the church, abortion is only minimalized. Let's regulate it, right? Not abolish it. Let's just sort of, let's put some things in place, right? We're not that crazy, Sodomy will just limit to two consensual people, and so on. This is one of the strategies of the enemy. And by enemy, I simply mean Satan and, and all who do his bidding. So, you know, you, you can have your Christianity, but don't make it known. Stay behind the walls of your 501c3. Chill out. Don't bother anybody. You'll be good to go. So, love Jesus, but keep it down. <laughs> and keep it to yourself. Now, I'm not talking about, you've seen these things, the memes that float around, you know, if you love Jesus, share this, otherwise you're going to hell. <laughs> that escalated quickly. Um, no, we're not, we're not talking about winning arguments. Um, I'm all for Jesus being Lord of all, especially on social media, because he is. But I'm talking about us, Cross and Crown Church, being, being Christians in the public square. So our culture hates that, right? But we would rather obey God than men. 
so-called Christians who don't have a biblical worldview, a biblical view of the kingdom of God, they really don't have the option to cling to the truth when you've sawed off your own branch. You really don't have that option. If you think that Christ's kingdom doesn't really have anything to do with the present order of things, and you believe that his kingdom is, is, is still something you know, we're waiting for in this obscure future, if that's you, you are essentially carrying around a squirt gun instead of a 45, right? You, you think you have the power. You may be even zealous about evangelism, but your gun says nerf on it. You, not going to do anything. And, and here's the thing, too. You can't have this both ways. You don't get to name the name of, of Christ in your comfortable church building, right? And then not name him when you're out and about doing your thing. You, you don't get to claim his lordship over everything here on earth right now and then act like it's just not true. You can't have it both ways. Now, <clears throat> if we wish to be people of faith, we must be people who do not concede the things our culture wishes us to concede. We don't concede on these terms, right, as determined by the powers that be, and then we turn around and affirm Christ's lordship. The greatest tactic of humanism against Christianity is the minimizing the destruction, excuse me, the minimizing of the destructive nature of its theology. It's the greatest tactic. It's the smoke and mirrors. It's the greatest tactic. Secular humanism, the way that you get it in a culture is you minimize and you downplay the destructive nature of it. Secular humanism is the greatest religion of our nation, but it cloaks itself in humility so as to loosen the blow against your religion. Keep your churches. We'll even, we'll even keep them tax-free, right? All this stuff. Keep your theology. But we just want a little bit of religious freedom. We, just, we want a little bit of, of this. And so we concede on that, which is nonsense. The sodomite movement, for example, is not going to be content until all the children come home questioning things. The Holocaust, it is abortion, won't end until the church makes it end. Now remember, though, here's the problem. Jesus greeted, Judas greeted Jesus with a kiss. And that's what we're doing. That's what we're doing. In order for those things to end, we have to know this. And I think you know this. I know you know this. But by and large, most of Christianity doesn't in America, in the West. Pragmatism instead of applied lordship is our cancer. Pragmatism instead of applying the lordship of Christ, that's our cancer. Pr pragmatism is the Christian drug of choice. It's the poison we've picked. If pragmatism believes that because the, things, the thing works, right, and it provides some sort of benefit to us, then we can just agree with it. This is, this is how it plays out if it works. <laughs> let's use it. Sure. Let's, let's, <laughs> let's get a helicopter, drop some eggs. It works. People flock to that stuff, doesn't it? It works. The Bible says in Exodus 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. So what do we do here in this nation? We have many gods on the shelf, right? 
usually ourself, and we sort of pull these gods off the shelf as we see fit. And I can hear the objection, well, that's Old Testament. It doesn't apply. Right. So what, what happens in our churches even? Christians get comfortable with all the gods in the pantheon. We sort of just do whatever works, right? We're, we're pragmatists. We get comfortable. Think about the issue of religious freedom. Jesus, God said, do not have any other gods before me. Are we going to take that seriously in our, in our homes, in this nation? You know, the, the, first, the first commandment doesn't say, well, you shall have very few gods before me. It says, you shall have no other gods. But we're pragmatists. So we, we kind of finagle with that, and we do whatever works best for us. And, we, and what works best for us is having more stuff, right? Just, just accumulating all these great things and sort of doing our own thing. And we get distracted with our other gods, and we forget what we're here to do. Because we're pragmatists. We, we've, we've cozied up and said, well, we're Christians. And what we're really saying is, well, Jesus is kind of sort of Lord a little bit. Listen. For us, we, we believe in a comprehensive, right in this banner, all of Christ for all of life, we believe in this comprehensive thing, right? This big picture thing. And we love it. We talk about it all the time. We think about it. We tell others about it. What, what's your church like? Well, we're trying to take over. <laughs> but we're not like kooky, but maybe we are. But <laughs> so, so we have a category for all these things. We're post-mill. That's what we do. But there's too many misunderstandings, too many misunderstandings of verses like this. The nature of the kingdom. What is the kingdom? How does the kingdom apply? Does it apply? We're falling out of the tree and landing on the ground and we're hurt because of it. Why? Because we don't really believe Jesus is Lord. We don't really believe it. This is the church in the West right now. And I'll wrap up with this. Listen, the, the kingdom of God is so powerful, so sure and secure that all the petty nonsense, all the petty nonsense that the world throws at us, it really can't touch us. It can't. Why is it that a person can go to the hard places, Pakistan, all these places, why can they go there and be martyred for Christ and it not really ultimately be of concern? Why? Because of the kingdom of God. Right? Go, go ahead. Slap me. Spit on me. Abuse me. Curse me. You can even kill me. But guess what? You can't harm me. The kingdom of God is so sure. It is so secure. None of that matters. So we have to deal with the pragmatism. We have to deal with the fearfulness. We have to deal with the fact, for the, for the most part, evangelicals are believing the spies. The giants are in the land. We're too scared. We should run and hide. So men, let's lead our homes with this attitude. Women, your help meets in this dominion covenant. We have to do this. We have to do this, right? Where are the pastors and the elders that do, that have this this zeal, this vision for the kingdom? When, when when you give yourself over, in whatever capacity the Lord has granted you at this point in your life, when you give yourself over to pragmatism, and fear, instead of applying Christ's lordship to everything. You, you swallow the poison, you contract the cancer. You, you render yourselves inefficient. And so we can't make this say, 
it says all of Christ for all of life, but we can't say, well, some of Christ for just a little bit of part of my life. This kingdom has a gospel that offers forgiveness of sins because this kingdom has a Savior who was crucified. This kingdom has an empty tomb, which means that the promise of salvation is secured. This kingdom has a righteous king on the throne who scatters his enemies while comforting the afflicted. This kingdom has a gracious God who is far more worthy of our fear than the gods that we construct in this nation. This kingdom is worth living for. This kingdom is worth dying for. That is the present kingdom. So let's put down the saw. Let's get to work. And let's take care of our portion of the gardens, shall we? John 18, 36. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are a needy people. We desperately need you to work among us. But we know that this won't happen until a few things change. We can't expect the culture around us to repent and believe the gospel until the church repents and believes the gospel. So here we are, Lord. We are attempting to do just that. Would you please grant us this repentance and and lead us to the fountain of your unending grace. Lord, I pray for this church, each person here and even those not here today, that you you would bless them, bless us richly. Give us a passion and a zeal for your kingdom. The kingdom that that we are to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We ask this in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen.